Do I want to speak in tongues? Well, what is tongues? Let's talk about that. And I want to talk about the major strengths and weaknesses of the various major three Christian traditions. This is Theology Unplugged. I think theology is for the clergy. I just believe in Jesus. Certain hermeneutics of eschatology demand an exegetical approach. I think you shouldn't question what you were taught in church. Isn't that blasphemy or something? Theology. Theology. Unplugged. Okay, so Theology Unplugged Live, thank you for joining us. Um, we are going to go through questions and answers. Uh, audience questions and answers. I do this uh, ever so often, and I think it's a lot of fun. I try to get through these as quick as I possibly can. Um, the first one, also, wait, before we do that, I want to put down here on the ticker that you can join us on Thursday night for our Patreon coffee and theology that is our live class we're right now we're doing a course called of first importance you can see that there but you can also click on the qr code right here and it'll take you straight to the place so i'll leave that up just for a moment let's go ahead and get to the first question first question is this do i uh, it's the assumption here it starts with um how can I say I want you want to be a charismatic? Because I tell people all the time that I want to be charismatic. And I certainly do want to be charismatic. I want to be able to experience the fullness of the gifts of the Spirit in a more evident way on, in my daily life. I take issue with any Christian who comes and says, I don't want that. Uh, you may be tainted by it. Maybe you came from a Christian church where they did it badly. And maybe you don't believe that it's relevant for today or or it's not relevant. It, it actually goes on today anymore. But at the same time, how could we say that we don't want to be charismatic? Basically, what we're saying, whenever I say this, is that I want to experience the presence of God in a more evident way. I want a little bit more of heaven to be here on the earth because I can't wait to get to heaven and God to speak to me directly. But I'll take a prophet for right now if I could. I'll I'll become a prophet if the Lord would call me to be in a prophet. I'm neither a prophet nor certainly not the son of a prophet. Uh, but this question is not that. It's not how can I want to be charismatic, but it says, do I really want to speak in tongues? Well, I mean, yes. I mean, the, the gift is a gift, and so it is one of the best self uh, in a miraculous manner. And so what I want to speak in tongues. Now, the question that is very hard that I'm going to spend just a moment on here is that I'm not really sure what the gift of tongues uh, is or the gifts of tongues are. Let me explain. I do believe very clearly in Acts chapter 2 what you have there whenever the Holy Spirit comes up after Jesus is risen from the dead. He goes back up to, into heaven and then Jesus says the Holy Spirit will appear to you or come to you 40 days from now. And that's what happened. 40 days later, they're all sitting in an upper room and it says tongues as of fire appeared to them and started distributing itself upon them. So the this weird manifestation of the spirit that was fire coming down 
uh, began to settle on each one of them. Then suddenly they could all speak in a language that they know. How do I know it's a language they didn't know? Well, at least I can tell you this. The people who were outside in Acts chapter 2, and they heard him. They were from all over the world at the time, coming into Jerusalem for the Pentecost. And so you had people speaking different languages, different dialects, even different accents. And you have all of them gathered together, and they are they are uh, saying to the apostles, how in the world are you guys speaking this way? You, How can you speak in this way because you don't know our language? How is it that all these people, the, these babbling Galileans, you know, Galileans was kind of country hick. These country hicks could speak Greek and they could speak uh, different dialects of Aramaic and, and all of the different languages and Latin that was around in that day. And they were all, it was a miracle. And they were speaking the great things of God, the mysteries of God. That's what it says was happening. And so that, at least in that case, is most definitely, it is most definitely a gift that was given to them for the purpose of telling all of those people there from different nations about Christ and giving them some type of evident miracle to where they know that these the whatever whoever's saying these things God must have come upon them because these people wouldn't know this language now that is in Acts chapter 2 at least what people were hearing the problem is, is when you get to Acts chapter 14 it seems to be that you might have a different gift of tongues and so You've got tongues in Acts chapter 2 being a particular kind of gift, but something different seems to be go possibly, I'm not co totally convinced of this yet, but possibly going on in Acts chapter 14, whenever Paul is trying to get the people to prophesy clearly, giving people the word of the Lord rather than babbling with their mouth things they don't understand. And so Paul was arguing, hey, listen, you keep on speaking in tongues in church and nobody can understand you. There weren't people there at that time, at least like Acts chapter 2, that knew the languages they were speaking in. Nobody knew what was going on. And Paul was saying, this isn't good. Don't speak in tongues whenever there's not somebody there either to interpret what you're saying or that understands what you're saying based upon their native dialect. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, whenever he's arguing against this, 14, he says uh, in verse 4, the one who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. Now, isn't that interesting? Because Paul says very clearly right there, there that the gift of tongues edifies the individual who is speaking with that gift. So Paul is saying, in contrast to what the first Corinthians chapter 12 through chapters earlier, he said the gifts of the spirit are given for the common good. And in this case, what is going on is you're only edifying yourself. Now, he may be saying that in a very bad sense, like, like you shouldn't ever just edify yourself. But I don't think that's what he's saying. I think I think that it is an edification of this particular type of gift of tongues that is for the person. Therefore, it may be a personal prayer language. Um, Paul says in verse 18, the same context, 
I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. However, in the church, so in contrast, in the church, I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I may instruct others also rather than 10,000 words with the tongue. And so he says, I'm glad I speak in tongues so much. But whenever I'm in the church, I don't really want to use that particular gift. So what is he saying? He's saying in my private life, I do use this gift and I'm very thankful that I have this gift. Now, what is this gift then if it is not another language? If I, what I'm saying right here is correct, that this is actually a different gift. Tongues number two um, that Paul is talking about here. What is it? Well, to talk to people who speak in tongues... And this, this is the best I can do because I've never spoken in tongues. Uh, yes, I have prayed for it. Yes, I still desire it, just never have. Don't know if I've ever heard anybody actually speak in tongues because I don't know how to evaluate that. Uh, between them and God, I guess, if, if it's a private prayer language. But um, what would this be if it's a private prayer language? Well, think of it this way. This is the best I've had it described to me. Is that it is a gift that you speak uh, that 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 is an unarticulated expression of spiritual emotion that's the best way to put it the gift of tongues is an unarticulated expression of spiritual emotion you say michael what in the world does that mean that's just a bunch of tongues right there it's all uh, uh, just i don't understand it need an interpreter well let me interpret it for you um laughter is an unarticulated expression of emotion of joy, of, uh, of, of understanding comedy. Uh, crying is an unarticulated expression of sorrow. We have that in our lives. I mean, God has created us with the ability to speak in an unarticulated way to express certain emotions or certain events in our lives that call for these things. And I'm telling you, I was glad. I don't know what I'd do without laughter. I could do without crying, but I don't know what I would do without laughter. And maybe this, maybe tongues in this case, in Acts chapter, or 1 Corinthians chapter 14, he is talking about this is an unarticulated expression of spiritual emotion. It doesn't have real rhyme or reason to it. You can't, it's just something that comes out of you whenever you were overwhelmed with spirituality or with the presence of God or with just your prayer to God and suddenly it begins to happen. I would love to have that happen. I'm a very emotional person. I love to express my emotions. I love to have my emotions all everything good. I love lots of laughter and very few times of crying. But just think if I could add this to it, you know, this this new prayer language to where it, it it's elevates above laughter, way above laughter. That would be great. So I am open to the gift of tongues being that. Now, again, do I want to speak in tongues? Well, yes, of course. Whatever it is, I want to speak in tongues. But uh, it's hard to define. So let's see here. Um, next one. What are the strengths and weaknesses of each tradition? Now, this is really talking about the strengths and weaknesses of the major Christian traditions. 
I think not each tradition in, in all of Christianity, but what are the strengths and weaknesses of each major Christian tradition? I'm going to try to get through this and talk about each one of these, but let's start by talking about Roman Catholics. What, what is the strength of the Roman Catholic Church? I think the strength of the Roman Catholic Church comes most definitely in their aspiration for unity, their aspiration for oneness, not just oneness in spirit, not just oneness in Christ in the sense that we are baptized into one spirit, but an expression in a world, real world way of that oneness. And so therefore, this oneness is expressed by unity, unity in doctrine, unity in practice. And so they do aspire to that. That is what the entire uh, the entire structure of the Roman Catholic Church is built around the assumption that God wants us to be one in a very real expression. And so um, that's why you have the Pope. Who, who, what does the Pope do? The Pope brings everybody together, doctrinally speaking. What do the councils do? The councils bring everybody together, doctrinally speaking. Now, I'm not saying this isn't this isn't filled with problems as well. I don't want to go into the problems. There there are problems with that simply because I mean it's it's an aspiration, but is it really ever an accomplishment to any large degree? I mean, even whenever you're talking about the councils, the the 13 ecumenical councils, who interprets those? You know, Catholics often say to us, who interprets the Bible for you? And we say it's our personal interpretation. Right. I mean, at least ultimately, that's where it comes down to. It's grounded in our own personal interpretation. Hopefully we have other people rely, we rely upon, but it's our own personal interpretation. Um, and then they say, well, we don't have to rely upon our own personal interpretation. We rely upon what's called the magisterial authority of the church or the, you know, the pope and the councils. And my, my question is always, well, how do you interpret them? Who interprets them for you? Who interprets the Pope whenever he speaks ex cathedra from the chair of St. Peter in a, in a dogmatic way? Who interprets the catechism, which isn't even dogma, it's just an interpretation of the councils and the Pope? And so you, you always come down to the same thing. We're always, we're always having to be our own interpreter. Maybe, am I, is that the weakness of it? That's not really the weakness, I'm just... I'm just qualifying that some. The weakness, I would say, primarily primarily with the Catholic Church is that the Catholic Church does not have, to the degree that the Protestant Church does, does not emphasize and sometimes even pulls away from this, the idea of having a personal relationship with Christ. And I think this is so important. It's part of their criticism of us because it's all personal to us. And that, that's what they would say, and that there's not this community aspect of the church. You are your own silo. There's no big church that God ha is uh, using to change the world. He's using us individually. Well, we don't really think that, but we do believe, as a Protestant, I do believe that it all starts with a personal relationship with Christ. It is. I mean, that's the question. What have you done with him personally? Who do you say that he is? I don't care who your priest says that he is. I don't care who your pastor or the pope says that he is. Because you cannot, that God has no spiritual grandchildren, as it's 
many times said. We have to come to Christ on our own in a personal encounter. Now, that personal encounter gives way to community, but it has to start with the personal encounter. And unfortunately, I think within the Catholic Church, you have such a such a lack of understanding or a lack of emphasis upon the personal relationship with Christ that it's going to be very hard for people to actually find that personal relationship with Christ, which is the first and foremost thing. Okay, so let's talk about the Eastern Orthodox Church. What is the Eastern Orthodox Church's strengths and weaknesses? Um, the, the, the strengths of the Eastern Orthodox Church is, is their historic value of identity. The, the whole idea, I know that Catholics are like this in some way, but they have, no, 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 I'm sorry. This isn't a good one. I want to do a different one. That there is that, I mean, the, the identity that they have, and there's so much to be said about their tradition and where they get that tradition from. But I think their biggest strength has to do with the mystery that they allow for in the church. And the only reason I can say that is because I'm coming from a tradition in the Western world, both Protestants and Catholics are Western Christians. And as Western Christians, we speak more about revelation than we do mystery. We are trying, I mean, you, you look back here and see all of my books and all of the, I mean, this was sometimes how you're defined by as a theologian. How many books have you written? How many books have you read? How many books do you have type thing as if that's some type of virtue in and of itself. Uh, the whole idea is we've got a lot of information. As Protestants, even much more than Catholics, we have got so much information and basically we've got every question answered. I mean, you've got the great historic saints writing volumes and volumes. Go look at St. Thomas Aquinas's works, who both Protestants and Catholics claim. But uh, it's just, he answers every question under the sun. Uh, so much so, he was called the angelic doctor, because he could tell you how many angels could dance on the head of a pen. That's a real thing. Um but I mean, what what does that do? The well, the Eastern Orthodox Church comes in and scratches their head, and they say, "You guys, God is God is infinite. You are finite. God is ineffable, beyond our understanding. We are those who put put our our thoughts down in human language that is so limited. And you put God in a box whenever you try to answer all of his, of his questions. And I think to some degree they're right." I think to a large degree, we do try to answer everything and we do not appreciate the mystery that is involved. They have basic doctrine. They believe whenever you're talking about what they believe, they don't have tons of theology books. They just have the church of the seven ecumenical councils. The first seven ecumenical councils from 325 to 787, all of those define who the Eastern Orthodox Church is. And since then, there hasn't been any more definition in the sense of authoritative definition. But it all got cleared up at that point. And, they, and it, there's just so much that is open to mystery. And I think the idea of, of that is great. Uh, now, it has problems as well, but you know, I'm just talking about the strengths right now. Now, the problem with the Eastern Orthodox Church is very clear to me. I mean... It's just as clear as with the Catholic Church. They do not have outreach. They do not, I don't even know if they know the term evangelism. 
Um, they are not out. Then one of their their primary goal is not to go out and spread the Great Commission by telling others about Christ, by telling their people to find themselves in whatever situation they are at, at work, at, at school, in their neighborhood, and try to tell other people about Christ, or even invite them to the church. And the reason for this is because, because the Eastern Orthodox Church is so incredibly isolated from, from the standpoint of language to the standpoint of liturgy, how they do things. You walk into an Eastern Orthodox church, especially if it's an authentic one, you'll be scratching your head saying, what in the world is going on? I could never figure out all this stuff. And it's just a tradition they go through. They do the same tradition they've done for the last thousand years. Uh, the last 1500 years, they're doing the same ones. And um, they they don't... I. I they don't have the emphasis about telling other people about Christ. And if they don't have that emphasis, it's hard for me to believe. I'm not saying they're not Christians. I'm just saying it's hard for me to believe that Christ has impacted them that much. Because what happens when you've been impacted by something and it changes your life? You want to tell everybody you love about it. But their church is very isolated. So that's the weakness. Now the strengths and the weakness of the Protestant church. What is that? Well, the strength and weakness of the Protestant church um, is, uh, well, let, let's talk about the weakness. Whenever, whenever you're talking about the weakness of the church, um, it is that, no, no, let's talk about the strength. I'm sorry. The strength of the Protestant church, I think, is, you remember Catholics, it was their diversity or their unity. I think the strength, our strength is um, our 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 diversity. Their, theirs is unity. Ours is diversity. I think the diversity that we have is a great thing. Now, there's a lot of bad things to it as well, because as our strength is, then our weakness is going to be as well. And that our weakness really has to do with our separationist mentality, not like the Eastern Orthodox Church. I'll, I'll deal with that in just a moment. But whenever you're talking about um, our strengths, it is diversity. It is that we have so many different denominations. I know this is crazy for some of you to hear, 33,000 different denominations. Well, it's not so many so much the denominations that I'm talking about here, it's that we understand that iron sharpens iron. We understand that you can't just give somebody a a catechism and say this is everything you're supposed to believe. We understand that whenever we interpret the Bible ourselves, we could be doing it wrong. Therefore, we are always researching. We are all, always open to the possibility of being wrong. Roman Catholic can't be open their possibility to being wrong because the Pope and the Council speak infallibly about certain matters. And so those are not up for discussion. Um, and so with, as with Protestants, though, we can change. We can, we can grow in our faith. We can have one understanding for, uh, for one period of our life and then completely change. I'm not saying this is a great thing in the sense of it's a great thing just to have diversity. But think of this. This is going to drive some of you guys crazy. I don't think, I, I, even in heaven, I think there's going to be disagreements about theology. Now, nothing major. But there's still going to be a lot of things will still be left 
unclear and we're going to be in a wrestling match with truth for the rest of all eternity learning about god and developing and growing and which means changing as well and so there's going to be a glory to it so it, the change that we have in heaven the the uh, wrestling match we have in heaven with the truth is not a sinful one it's not a result of sin because we're rebellious and we don't want to believe it but it's because of the information and the greatness of our god who's giving this information and how long it takes us to understand that so therefore i think there's going to be teachers in the on the new earth i think i'm going to be a teacher and i'll be doing it on this same type of platform uh maybe so i mean honestly uh, i hope to be a teacher i hope i can keep on teaching theology uh, but just think of all the great theolo theology teachers we'll have. And I do think there's going to be differences. I mean, like, maybe there will still be Calvinists and some, maybe there will still be Arminians. Maybe God doesn't settle, settle that issue whenever we get to heaven. But we understand that the, the division that we would have at this point would not be a sinful division. It would just be a division of the information and trying to figure out what it is. And that that brings into the greatness of God and the mystery of God. So that is our strength. I think our greatest weakness as uh, Protestants um, comes with that. It's, it's just the opposite. We are very territorial in our denominational silos. We have all of these different churches that are all Protestant, all in one town, sometimes right across the street from each other, four, four churches on four corners, and they don't even know each other. They, they are territorial. They want to get all those people from across the street to come to our church because we do everything and we do everything the best. That's sometimes the idea that this creates, and it's terrible. Um, you know, we, we don't think very much of the Church of Oklahoma City. That's where I'm from. The Church of Oklahoma City. You've got some churches that are really good at teaching Bible study. You've got some churches that are really good at worship. You've got some churches that are really good at sharing the gospel and evangelism. You've got some churches that are really good at fellowship. Did I say that? Uh, there, there's a, a, Each church is going to have its own strengths. Now, what we don't want to do is to say, gosh, I wish my church did everything and we, we could have it all at our church. And I'm envious of the church across the street. I've seen pastors that are so envious. They're so green with envy. And it is so incredibly sad. Because instead of taking advantage of the church across the street, joining forces with them, they stay jealous or they try to top them off. And I think whenever you see yourself as the part of the church of Oklahoma City, my, my own community, really we're the church worldwide with so how much that we have, but with a fellowship in Oklahoma City, all the opportunities that we have to grow, all the opportunities that we have to change, all the opportunities that we have to experience people's spiritual gifts that we don't really have in our own circles. Now, we may all end up going back to a particular type of church that fits more with our personality. I'm not saying there's something wrong with that. It's only wrong whenever you isolate yourself and you're completely territorial and you, you do not want other churches to succeed and you do not want to take part in their success. Sometimes you go to church, one type of church your entire life, like a Bible church, say. And you've been taught the Bible so well, you know, for 20, 30 years. 
And I mean, uh, kudos to you for going to that church and learning the Bible. And then sometime you may somehow happen upon another church and friend invite you. And this church is so incredibly good at fellowship. And these people are so nice. They're so inviting. And all of a sudden you feel like a member and you, at the other place you were like, golly, I didn't feel quite like this here. Um, and then you go to this new place and then you take part in the fellowship that goes on there. Or you go to another one and there's evangelism going on and they're preaching the gospel so great that you want to bring all your friends to that particular church. That What I would love for the Protestant church to do is to get rid of this weakness and see this as a strength that we partner together with other churches in accomplishing the gospel. So that is uh, basically, the, let, let, how much time? Have I gone? I don't even know. I may not even be on anymore. No, I'm still on. <laughs> it doesn't show my time. So I'm going to assume that I've gone for 30 minutes and skip the last couple of questions. I hope you enjoyed this Theology Unplugged. Once again, check us out at Patreon. There's the there's the place again. Put your Get your camera out on your phone and put it up to that, and that will get you to Patreon dot com forward slash c michael Patton, and that is where we have our theological community and that theological community does everything perfectly and the other theological communities are no good compared to ours right <laughs> but um yeah we're, we're teaching a class on tuesday night or i'm teaching a class on tuesday night you can become a part of that uh, i hope you do and i i do thank you for joining me this time on theology unplugged whether you're doing this from Spotify or iTunes or YouTube or Facebook, uh, you can go to our Facebook page. And from our Facebook page, you can, um, uh, you can, or excuse me, go to our YouTube page and you can subscribe and you can get notifications every time that we go live. That would be great. Uh, love you guys and we'll see you next time.